Good morning, and uh, welcome to week number two of our message series, The Daniel Project. I would encourage you to turn uh, to Daniel 2 um, and grab your message notes. And while you're turning there, uh, you may not know that this last week on Monday, it was World Mental Health Day. You also may not know that one in 10 Americans will suffer a major depressive episode in their lifetime, or that 16.1 million adults experienced a a depressive episode last year at least one time, or that women are twice as likely to suffer depression as men. It is no exaggeration to say that everyone in this room is affected by depression. Uh, Our women's ministry wants to bring this illness out of the shadows of our community, and so on Saturday, November 5th from 9 to noon, they are hosting uh, a workshop, Women, Anxiety, and Depression, uh, trading silence for hope. And uh, the, this workshop is going to feature Cersei Martinez, uh, who is a, a fellow believer, a, a local licensed therapist, and she's going to be educating, encouraging, and e- equipping those who suffer and also those who care uh, for them. Uh, it's open to all women in our community, and we just want to encourage you to RSVP, get signed up at swcurrent.org. If you have any questions, Uh, You can email women at southwinds.org, and we will do our best uh, to help you with those those questions. Well, today in Daniel 2, we're going to look at a story that reminds us that there is a God in heaven. Uh, This chapter shows us that wise living in a secular culture uh, always calls for us to trust in God's sovereignty, to trust in that sovereignty alone for all that we need. I wonder if anyone here has ever done a trust fall. Uh, Check out this video. And close your eyes and just fall down, okay? Okay, then Lauren's going to catch you. Okay, Okay, it's called the trust fall. Okay, trust fall. Ready, set, go. (laughs) (laughs) So raise your hand if you've ever had a day sort of like that right there. Uh, As we saw last week, uh, the book of Daniel begins with Daniel and his friends falling in a direction they never thought that they would go. It was the year 605 BC, and Nebuchadnezzar shows up with his army. He invades Judah. He besieges and conquers Jerusalem, and then he deports the best and the brightest uh, of Judah back to Babylon. Daniel and his friends, as we shared last week, are probably 14 or 15 years old, and And they are are put into an indoctrination program that is intended to erase their culture and identity and then to replace that uh, with the culture and the thinking of the pagan Babylonian worldview. Nebuchadnezzar is the most powerful man in the world at this time, and he wants them to become influencers for his state, for his kingdom. And it was an amazing kingdom. The Babylon was the uh, supreme world power of its day. It remains one of the greatest empires in all world history. This reality reminds us that at all times in human history, all human cultures are are trying to erase our faith and trying to replace it with the thinking of the culture. This is really nothing new. It's happening in America right now. It always happens. It always will in different ways. But in the face of that, Daniel and his friends resolve that no matter what it takes, they will honor God, they will maintain their identities as his followers, they will not compromise with Babylonian culture. 
And chapter one shows them doing this with enormous skill, adapting but not compromising, going along with the crowd without becoming one of the crowd, fitting in without selling out. And God honors their faithfulness. God gives Daniel and his friends these positions of huge influence. Now, sometimes when you make this kind of decision to honor God, sometimes life gets easier, at least for a while. But that doesn't happen here. King Nebuchadnezzar, the most powerful man in the world, has a nightmare. And if he has a nightmare, everyone else is going to have a bad day too. Uh, He wants his officials to interpret his dream. And if they don't, he promises them that they will be terminated. And by that, he actually means terminated. There's not going to be any severance package, severance pay going on here. The only severance that's going to happen will involve heads and limbs. Now, here's Daniel's question. It really is our question today. How can we remain faithful to God in a world that rejects him? How can we live courageously when our culture ridicules, ostracizes, and even sometimes attacks us for seeking to follow God in his ways? What do we do when we're misunderstood or maligned or sometimes mistreated? How can we bless the people around us when they think that we're weird, best case scenario, or they think we're dangerous, worst case? Now, this is a long chapter, and we're going to be reading all 49 verses as we work our way through. I've told the earlier two services that this is going to be a test of your ability to listen quickly. We will see how you do. Okay? And on the way, we're going to show you three different truths from this chapter that each of us needs to remember uh, to live wisely in a secular culture. Here's the first one. You want to go ahead and write this down, and then we'll read. Number one, man's power and wisdom will always ultimately fail. Let me read verses 1 through 13. In the second year of his reign, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams. His mind was troubled and he could not sleep. So the king summoned the magicians, enchanters, sorcerers, and astrologers to tell him what he had dreamed. When they came in and stood before the king, he said to them, I have had a dream that troubles me and I want to know what it means. Then the astrologers answered the king in Aramaic. And by the way, kind of note that. We're going to mention that later on. O king, live forever. Tell your servants the dream and we will interpret it. The king replied to the astrologers, this is what I have firmly decided. If you do not tell me what my dream was and interpret it, I will have you cut into pieces and your houses turned into piles of rubble. But if you tell me the dream and explain it, you will receive from me gifts and rewards and great honor. So tell me the dream and interpret it for me. Once more they replied, Let the king tell his servants the dream, and we will interpret it. Then the king answered, I am certain that you are trying to gain time because you realize that this is what I have firmly decided. If you do not tell me the dream, there is just one penalty for you. You have conspired to tell me misleading and wicked things, hoping the situation will change. So then, tell me the dream, and I will know that you can interpret it for me. The astrologers answered the king, There is not a man on earth who can do what the king asks. No king, however great and mighty, has ever asked such a thing of any magician or enchanter or astrologer. What the king asks is too difficult. No one can reveal it to the king except the gods, and they do not live among men. This made the king so angry and furious 
that he ordered the execution of all the wise men of Babylon. So the decree was issued to put the wise men to death, and men were sent to look for Daniel and his friends to put them to death. Now these opening verses give us a little window into the kind of power that Nebuchadnezzar wielded. His advisors, you may have noticed, treat him like a god. Be eternal, king. May you never die. But ironically, this god is troubled. This god can't sleep. This god has a problem that he cannot solve. Now, we've all experienced disturbing dreams, but but this dream was so real, so vivid, that apparently the king was desperate to find out what it meant. He summons his advisors. He summons the wise men of Babylon. Now, since it was a pagan culture, that included magicians, enchanters, sorcerers, astrologers, all practiced in the occultic arts, which Babylon as a culture and civilization had had built itself on. We have records today of Babylonia's vast libraries discussing how to interpret dreams. They cataloged all different kinds of them. They had had uh, interpretations for all the different kinds of omens that could happen. They had it down to a science. And so these men were like, tell me the dream. We'll look it up in our vast records, and then we'll give you the interpretation. But Nebuchadnezzar wanted to make absolutely sure that what he heard from them was true. He was so troubled. The dream was so powerful and vivid. He wanted to, to make absolutely sure that the interpretation was a supernatural one. And the only way he thought that he could know that was he wouldn't tell them the dream. They would have to tell him the dream, and that would prove to him that they had the ability to actually truthfully interpret the dream. That way he knew that they had a pipeline to something outside of the ordinary. And so what he was doing really was testing them, testing their wisdom, testing their abilities, testing their resources. There's a real sense in which he was doing this. He was calling his own culture's bluff. It's like, if we have built our entire society on this, our entire culture on this, if this is the way that we have knowledge, I'm going to put it to the test. I'm going to see if it actually pays off. What do they do? Well, they panic. They say, we can't deliver. And their words are telling. This is a a, a real indictment. They said, no man on earth can do this. It would take a God, and the gods aren't part of our lives. It was a confession of spiritual bankruptcy. This is something that all cultures have to own up to ultimately. And certainly our own culture has to make that that same confession. Uh, Most people don't consciously recognize it. But we live in a day where our pluralistic, relativistic culture has given up the search for truth. Most of the people you live with and know, maybe even you, don't really believe that truth exists. They they think that reality is subjective, that truth is just what's true for me. And what happens when circumstances confront us with real challenges that drive us deep for answers. We find that the well is dry. There's nothing there. We've divorced ourselves from what is deep. We're no longer tied into God. We've cut ourselves off from a Christian worldview. And so when we need real answers, they are nowhere to be found. You know, if there's ever a day where it could be said with absolute finality that we live in a post-Christian culture in the United States, it is today. And we really do see that spiritual bankruptcy all the time. Violence, racism, corruption in business, corruption in government. 
We, we can't seem to find the answers. We just kind of lurch from one crisis to another. No one is able to interpret the dream. See, the problems are far, far deeper than we want to admit because the problems are within the human soul. We don't have answers for that dream. That goes beyond what men can understand. Only God can understand and interpret that, and we have erased God from the equation. When Nebuchadnezzar was enraged because he couldn't find an answer, and so he commands the execution of everyone in his kingdom, his court, that set themselves up as wise or had been set aside to be the wise men. That includes Daniel. That includes his companions. But as we're going to see, once again, Daniel deftly maneuvers within the situation to allow his faith and his relationship with God to be revealed. Let me give you the second truth. You can write this down. God alone has the answers all people ultimately seek. You need to know that if you're going to live wisely in a secular culture. God alone has the answers all people ultimately seek. Let's read again, starting in verse 14. When Arioch, the commander of the king's guard, had gone out to put to death the wise men of Babylon, Daniel spoke to him with wisdom and tact. He asked the king's officer, why did the king issue such a harsh decree? Arioch then explained the matter to Daniel. At this, Daniel went in to the king and asked for time so that he might interpret the dream for him. Now stop right there. Did you notice what Daniel did? When the wheels were coming off, when his life and the lives of his friends were being threatened, he was calm and collected. Verse 14 says he responded with, with wisdom and tact. Arioch is coming to kill him. He, he shows up sword in hand, but Daniel never once questions his judgment. He just asks some questions about the situation. And it's almost in this impersonal, sort of non-threatening way, just to open up some dialogue. And this makes the guy who'd come to kill take some time to talk, explain what's going on and why. And that gave Daniel the information he needed to, to address the issues and avoid what was getting ready to take place. Before we go any further, I want to make sure that this little lesson is learned. When something starts to unravel in your life, maybe at work, maybe at school, and it challenges everyone, including you, when you come face to face with that challenge, maybe it's even a hostile situation, what do you do? Daniel stayed calm. Why did he stay calm? Because as we saw last week, and we're going to continue to see, he trusted God. Because he trusted God, he had the freedom to try to build bridges of understanding with people who didn't know God so that he could somehow, together with him, work out a situation under God's providence uh, in a way that would address the problem, not only for him, but also for everyone. That's not all. We're going to see this as we work our way through the rest of this chapter. But Daniel also saw this as an opportunity to demonstrate that the God he followed had the answers the culture was seeking that his God was real, that his God was therefore greater than the false gods they had built their lives on. You see, everyone around Daniel had nothing left in the tank. They were running on fumes, but Daniel's tank was full because he worshiped the one true living God. So he could step up. He could provide what the culture did not have. And again, he did it with wisdom intact, not in a shove it down your throat mentality, not, not in a, a holier than thou spirit, just, just raw faith meeting raw reality. Daniel was a wise man. 
But all the wise men had failed. And he now has a chance to show his wisdom that came from his relationship with the living God and how he could address every issue of the day. You see, Daniel saw a God moment. So he goes to the king. And instead of arguing like the others, he, he simply says, I'd like a shot at this. Would you please give me a little time? I will interpret the dream for you. Now, again, that is a key insight into our situation today because we need to be people who also demonstrate at every turn that the God we worship, the faith we embrace, it speaks to life's issues in a way that nothing else does. And you know where that starts? That starts with us individually, how we live our lives. We need to show that the way we build our marriages and our families, that the way we love our neighbors, that the way we address the social issues around us, that those things are better than what our culture offers, hands down. And I just need to ask, is that how you're living? Are are the people around you who do not know Jesus Christ, are they able to look at your life, look at your marriage, look at your family, look at your character, and see something that they do not have? See, we need to be looking for every possible opportunity to show people that the God we worship is superior to the false gods of this world. Among other things, that means we need to be looking for every possible opportunity to contend for Christ in the marketplace of ideas and philosophies and programs. Because when we do that, we're going to encounter people who have tried everything else and it hasn't worked. And when that happens, we can say to them with boldness, here is something that works. Let me tell you about someone who is true. Here is a relationship that will not fail you. We can say it with confidence. We can step into the gap and fill the void just like Daniel did. Daniel didn't hide from the issues of his day, the problems people were facing. He, he forcefully, clearly put God forward as the only answer, and then he trusted that God would come through. Now, the next thing Daniel did was equally strategic. In verses 17 and 18, it says, Then Daniel returned to his house and explained the matter to his friends Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. He urged them to plead for mercy from the God of heaven concerning this mystery so that he and his friends might not be executed with the rest of the wise men of Babylon. During the night, the mystery was revealed to Daniel in a vision. Then Daniel praised the God of heaven and said, Praise be to the name of God forever and ever. Wisdom and power are his. He changes times and seasons. He sets up kings and deposes them. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to the discerning. He reveals deep and hidden things. He knows what lies in darkness and light dwells with him. I thank and praise you, O God of my fathers. You have given me wisdom and power. You have made known to me what we ask of you. You have made known to us the dream of the king. Now, this is a loaded section, and I, I want you to notice three things. First, notice that Daniel prayed in community. Did you see how Daniel immediately, reflexively went to his friends, told them the need, and urged them to pray with him? Let me just ask you, when your back is up against the wall, what do you do first? So many of us, what we do first is we try to do everything we know how to do. We try to use every bit of strength we have in and of ourselves. And if that doesn't fix it, if that doesn't solve it, oh, then we'll pray. Then we'll ask God. 
See, we need to be people whose reflex, whose instinct is to circle with those who share our faith, those who are close to us, and then submit those challenges to God fervently, to God passionately as a group. This is such a huge thing. Daniel had a choice. What would he prioritize? What would his major strategy be to address this situation? And he chose prayer. He led with prayer, not his intelligence, not his cleverness. Plan A, first base, number one, I'm going to pray. And I'm going to pray with my brothers, those who know me well. And this is not just any prayer. This is fervent. This is passionate prayer. We don't have time to chase this one. I wish we did. But let me just say this. There is power in prayer, and God is moved by our prayers. God has willed that he will be moved by prayer. And that means not only does prayer matter, but it means the more we pray, the more it matters. Second thing to notice, God provided for Daniel's needs. I mean, God just comes through because Daniel had something the culture did not. And it is so easy for us, please be aware of this in our own lives, it's so easy for us to kind of live and and we pray, but we don't really expect that God's going to come through. We don't really think he's going to get supernaturally involved in our lives. We don't think that he's going to provide answers. You need to understand as you read this, that never entered Daniel's mind. In fact, his entire mindset was to set everything up to attempt it in a way that, that, that put him uh, totally dependent on God, entirely vulnerable apart from God coming through. He goes to the king and says, I will interpret the, the dream. And that means his life depends on God's, God coming through. And he's not presuming on God. He's not testing God. He is just believing in God. And God honors that. God smiles on that. Third, notice Daniel's reaction. He responded to God's provision with thanksgiving. When he got the vision, when he knew his life was saved, he didn't immediately go running to the king. He didn't go running to his friends. He didn't go out, you know, have a beer and say, I need, I, I need to relax now. Life is good. He prayed again. He hid his knees in thanksgiving because he wanted it to be clear that it was God and it was God alone who was the source of all knowledge and wisdom and insight. He was, again, declaring that what the culture was seeking could not be found anywhere else. And on top of this, this really blows me away. You must not miss it. All of this is happening. His, his bold declarations of God's coming through is all happening before he even knew for sure that he had the dream right. Do you see that? I mean, this is radical faith. He's celebrating, thanking God for deliverance before he knew that God had done it. He has a vision and he assumes that God would answer his prayer, that it was God coming through. When in actuality, he didn't have any idea until he went before the king whether or not what he'd seen was really the dream and, and whether or not he really did have the interpretation. He just believed that God had answered his prayer. I mean, it's absolute, utter, total faith. With that, Daniel goes to the king, and in verse 24, through the rest of the chapter, we see the third thing I want you to notice. Write this down. God's power and wisdom will always ultimately triumph will always ultimately triumph. Verse 24 says, Then Daniel went to Arioch, 
whom the king had appointed to execute the wise men of Babylon, and said to him, Do not execute the wise men of Babylon. Take me to the king, and I will interpret his dream for him. Arioch took Daniel to the king at once and said, I have found a man among the exiles from Judah who can tell the king what his dream means. The king asked Daniel, also called Belteshazzar, Are you able to tell me what I saw in my dream and interpret it? Daniel replied, No wise man, enchanter, magician, or diviner can explain to the king the mystery he has asked about, but there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries. He has shown King Nebuchadnezzar what will happen in days to come. Your dream and the visions that pass through your mind as you lay on your bed are these. And before we get to that, let me point out a couple of things. I want you to notice, do not miss the contrast between Arioch's pride and Daniel's humility. Arioch, this official, goes to the king, and he is full of himself. Look at what I found. I've got the guy with the answer, O king. He's trying to claim credit for himself, even though he had done nothing. Compare that to Daniel. Rather than claim any credit for himself, Daniel says, O king, let me begin by telling you that what I'm about to share with you has nothing to do with my ability or wisdom. I want the record set straight. What I have to tell you comes directly from God. Daniel refused to take credit. And then notice, Daniel uses this knowledge he's been given to speak ultimate truth to the king. This is so important. He said, O king, anything I tell you, it is not for me. O king, you need to know that there is a God in heaven and he is on the loose. He gave this to me. And O king, you need to get to know him. Everything I'm going to tell you is about this God and you don't know him. But he really is the God of everything, the Lord of the heavens. It's a fascinating thing that he does, using what God had gifted him with to turn the king's thoughts to God. He's not trying to get honor and glory for himself. He only wants to share the love and the mercy and the grace of this great God with this king. He wants Nebuchadnezzar to know the God he worships. See, this challenge that Nebuchadnezzar presents to Daniel is seen by Daniel as just this golden opportunity to lift God up in a pagan culture and cause these people who don't know God to look at God in a way they've never done before. See, we cannot miss, and please hear this. Some of you need to write it down and ponder it. We cannot miss that, among other things, this book of Daniel is a book on evangelism. Going into exile, which is what happens to Daniel, which looks like the end of the world, actually ends up giving Daniel the evangelistic opportunity of a lifetime. See, there's a lot of times that a lot of us find ourselves in what we might feel like our exile situations, maybe, maybe an exile in a difficult marketplace condition, maybe exile in a challenging family circumstance, maybe in your neighborhood it feels like that or so on, and we get discouraged and we want to know, God, why? Why did you put us where we are? Remember I told you back in verse 4, I pointed out that it says the advisors answered the king in Aramaic. Some of you have a footnote in your Bible Maybe you've already looked at it. That says from chapter 2, verse 4, all the way through the end of chapter 7, that the text is all originally in Aramaic. First chapter of the book of Daniel is in Hebrew, as virtually the entire Old Testament is, except with a few isolated spots, but then six chapters in Aramaic. Why? It's kind of unusual. I mean, how often 
For example, have you picked up a book written in English and you get to chapter two and now it's in French? That doesn't happen real often, right? Because it wouldn't sell many copies if it did. So why does the writer do this? Well, Aramaic was the most common language in the Middle Eastern world at that time. It's sort of like actually English is in our world today. And it is as though this writer is signaling that God is not just a God of one tribe, one country, one language. He is the God of the whole world. Sometimes we may think that we're the first people ever to deal with diversity and multiculturalism. It is all over the book of Daniel. There's another detail I want you to notice. I won't take the time to read all these verses right now, but you can look for yourself and see that in verses 18 and 19 and 28 and 37 and 44, you'll see a name for God that's only used here in the second chapter of Daniel and then only in two other books in the Old Testament. It's the phrase, the God of heaven. Usually in the Old Testament, they use Hebrew names for God, like Yahweh or Elohim. But Daniel, because he is doing evangelism, because he is evangelizing the king, he wants to make it very clear to Nebuchadnezzar, this God that he's sharing with Nebuchadnezzar is not just Israel's God. You see, Nebuchadnezzar is very accustomed to people from other countries thinking they have their gods. He thinks Babylon has its gods. Everybody has gods. That's normal. Daniel is saying, no, this is not one God among many. This is the God of the whole earth. This is the God of heaven. And he is Lord of Babylon as well as Israel. He is Lord over Nebuchadnezzar, whether or not Nebuchadnezzar knows it. And he's still Lord. He's Lord of Jerusalem. He's Lord of Rome. He's Lord of New York and Lord of Washington and Lord of San Francisco. And he's the Lord of Tracy and Mountain House and Lathrop. He's the Lord wherever you are. He's the Lord whoever you're with. He is the Lord. He is the God of heaven. Daniel refers to God as the God of heaven, I think also knowing that Nebuchadnezzar has turned to astrologers for years, trying to get insight. And in this moment when he can't find answers, Daniel says to him, O king, this God, he is the Lord of the heavens. He is the God of the heavens who gave this to me. He is the God of the stars. It's just such a key thing to see in Daniel's life, especially as we continue through this book. You're going to see it time and time again. He uses his position and his place in the culture to transform the culture rather than being transformed by the culture. Nebuchadnezzar wanted to turn people like Daniel into pagans. Daniel was seeking to turn leaders of Babylon into God followers. Let me just ask you a question. When you look at your life, just be honest with yourself today. Are you a person who is influencing those around you, or are you more being influenced by them? Are you changing the culture around you in the circle of relationships you have, or are you being changed by it? See, God is calling us to live as Daniel did, to see our world and its challenges as opportunities to make his name known and declare his fame to everyone that we can. And we need to be sure that we are not losing the opportunities that God brings our way. I read about 
a man named Martin Niemöller. He was a German Lutheran bishop in the middle of the 20th century, and he was among a group of people called on to negotiate with Hitler during World War II in an attempt to save the church in Germany from being closed down by the Nazi dictator. Toward the end of his life, he told of a dream that he kept having over and over and over. In that dream, he saw Hitler standing before Jesus on Judgment Day. And in this dream, Jesus got off his throne and he went down and he put his arm around Hitler and he said to him, Adolf, why did you do such evil things? Why were you so cruel? And in this dream, Hitler, with his head bit low, said, because nobody ever told me how much you loved me. And at this point, Niemöller said he would always wake up from his dream in a cold sweat. He would remember the countless meetings he had with Hitler face to face where he never once said, Fuhrer, did you know Jesus loves you? Did you know he loves you more than you ever know? He loves you so much he died for you. Did you know that? See, Daniel did not let slip by the opportunities that God gave to him. And he said, O king, The God of heaven, he is speaking to you. That's why I know about your dream. And then he tells it, starting in verse 29. As you were lying there, O king, your mind turned to things to come, and the revealer of mysteries showed you what is going to happen. As for me, this mystery has been revealed to me, not because I have greater wisdom than any other living men, but so that you, O king, may know the interpretation and that you may understand what went through your mind. You looked, O king, and there before you stood a large statue, an enormous, dazzling statue, awesome in appearance. The head of the statue was made of pure gold, its chest and arms of silver, its belly and thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet partly of iron and partly of baked clay. While you were watching, a rock was cut out, but not by human hands. It struck the statue on its feet of iron and clay and smashed them. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold were broken to pieces at the same time and became like chaff on a threshing floor in the summer. The wind swept them away without leaving a trace. But the rock that struck the statue became a huge mountain and filled the whole earth. Now, did you catch all of that? This huge statue. Maybe it looks something like this. There are four different elements to the statue. Head made of gold, chest and arms of silver, belly and thighs of bronze, and then leg and feet of iron with some clay mixed in. And you're meant to notice that these elements, as you move down the statue, are decreasing in value and in strength. And then this rock fashioned not by human hands, not of human origin, strikes the statue at its feet at first. So the rock is not very large, not very impressive, but the rock destroys the statue. And then the rock takes the statue's place. And then the rock grows and grows and becomes a mountain that fills the entire earth. That's the dream the king had. So what did it mean? Well, Daniel tells him, beginning in verse 36, he says, this was the dream, and now we will interpret it to the king. You, O king, are the king of kings. 
The God of heaven has given you dominion and power and might and glory. In your hands he has placed mankind and the beasts of the field and the birds of the air. Wherever they live, he has made you ruler over them all. You are that head of gold. After you, another kingdom will rise inferior to yours. Next, a third kingdom, one of bronze, will rule over the whole earth. Finally, there will be a fourth kingdom, strong as iron, for iron breaks and smashes everything. And as iron breaks things to pieces, so it will crush and break all the others. Just as you saw that the feet and toes were partly of baked clay and partly of iron, so this will be a divided kingdom. Yet it will have some of the strength of iron in it, even as you saw iron mixed with clay. As the toes were partly iron and partly clay, so this kingdom will be partly strong and partly brittle. And just as you saw the iron mixed with baked clay, so the people will be a mixture and will not remain united even uh, any more than iron mixes with clay. In the time of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed, nor will it be left to another people. It will crush all those kingdoms and bring them to an end, but it will itself endure forever. This is the meaning of the vision of the rock cut out of a mountain, but not by human hands. A rock that broke the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold to pieces. The great God has shown the king what will take place in the future. The dream is true, and the interpretation is trustworthy. Do not miss, do not forget what I've already told you, that Daniel here is evangelizing Nebuchadnezzar. But he is doing it with great skill and great tact. And we can really learn from him. He, he, he actually starts with the good news. He gives him the good news first. He says, oh, king, you're the head of gold. That's great news. And Nebuchadnezzar says, yes, that is true. I am the head of gold. <laughs> but then Daniel continues and he gets real frank. And he tells him this statue has feet of clay. And he says, one day it's coming down. And Nebuchadnezzar, you need to know there is a God and he is the God of heaven and he will set things right one day. And that means, O king, you had better get right with him. See, do not miss the drama of this moment. Don't forget what's happening just because we know what's gonna happen next. Here is Nebuchadnezzar, the most powerful man in the world, Standing in front of him is a teenage Jewish boy who is an exile who's been taken from his home just a couple of years ago. He's standing in his presence. Nebuchadnezzar could, without batting an eyelash, have him killed if he offends him. And this boy, this young man, says, Nebuchadnezzar, you're going to die one day and there's going to be nothing left of your kingdom. It's going to be swept away without a trace. So Nebuchadnezzar, you had better get right with God. I was thinking about that this week. And I was thinking, what if we had a whole church full of Daniels with this kind of evangelistic boldness? Do you realize that every one of us who is here this morning is here Because someone, either in this church or in another church, sometime, one day, had the courage to develop a relationship with you and share their faith with you and invite you. You Sometimes I see people as the service starts and they're not looking up at the front where the stage is. They're turning around and looking toward the back at the door. Sometimes they stand out in the courtyard and sometimes I realize why they're doing that. 
because there's someone in their life, a seeking friend, and they're just waiting for them to come. They've built a relationship and they've prayed for them and they've shared their faith with them and they've asked them here. And they're in that vulnerable place right now, hoping and and waiting. These are people devoted to helping their friend meet God. And then I contrast that with some people I've talked to who basically tell me, really, I'm just too busy uh, to help people meet God. I don't have time in my schedule. I don't have an hour in my week, some people say, for unchurched people. Well, then you need to reallocate your hours. See, if Nebuchadnezzar was going to come to God, then God was going to use this teenage boy, this young man, Daniel, this exile, this political prisoner. Daniel had all kinds of reasons to shrink back, but he didn't. And God used his wisdom and his boldness to speak some incredible truth, truth that verifies the reality of God to this day over 2,500 years later. Do you understand, do you know, are you aware that what Daniel talks about here has actually happened in space, time, history? Now, we're not going to get into it in great detail today. We'll cover some of these in the weeks ahead. But this prophecy that Daniel relays comes through in enormous detail, and it is one of the kind of uh, most beautiful and convincing proofs of the existence and reality of God, our God that we worship, the God of heaven who actually knows what's going to happen in history before it happens. Let me just mention to you kind of what he's talking about here in history, and you can look it up later if you'd like. There were three major empires that followed Babylon leading up to the coming of Christ. Uh, After Babylon, there was the Medo-Persian Empire. And then after that, there was the Greek Empire, which under Alexander the Great ruled the known world and yet was weaker uh, than most empires because of its lack of internal administrative efficiency. And then following that came the Roman Empire, and it was known for its strength and power, its iron might. But it was also divided east and west and suffered much internal strife. And when you look at what Daniel tells us, we, we know now, looking back, that these four kingdoms that Daniel prophesied, including their characteristics, actually came true in history. Amen. And so did the fifth kingdom. For it was during the Roman Empire that the birth of Christ happened, fashioned not by human hand, but virgin-born. And when Jesus inaugurated his public ministry, you remember what he said? He told the people who were listening, the kingdom of God is at hand, so repent. The kingdom of God. And that kingdom has grown and it will continue to grow through the church until the return of Christ at the end of time where he will reign forevermore. Jesus is the rock of ages. Only one kingdom, the kingdom of God, ultimately triumphs. Only one kingdom reigns forever. So what did the king do with all this? Look at verses 46 and following. Then King Nebuchadnezzar fell prostrate before Daniel and paid him honor in order that an offering and incense be presented to him. The king said to Daniel, surely your God is the God of gods and the Lord of kings and a revealer of mysteries, for you were able to reveal this mystery. Nebuchadnezzar begins to open his heart to the God of heaven You may ask, is he converted here? Not likely. We're going to see next week he's still engaged in pagan idolatry and violence. But Daniel doesn't give up on him. 
because Daniel knows the God of heaven is at work even on Nebuchadnezzar. You know, people's spiritual journeys are usually not straight up the ladder. For most of us, right, isn't it like two steps forward and one step back so often? You see, if I trust God, then whoever's in my life, even if they are as powerful and rich as Nebuchadnezzar, I know that they're not lost without God, and therefore I can devote myself to sharing God with them. I can take risks. I can reallocate my time to help introduce other people to the God of heaven. Verse 48, it says, Then the king placed Daniel in a high position and lavished many gifts on him. He made him ruler over the entire province of Babylon. He placed him in charge of all its wise men. Moreover, at Daniel's request, the king appointed Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego administrators over the province of Babylon, while Daniel himself remained at the royal court. So Daniel, because of his bold faithfulness, he goes from death row to the very pinnacle of power. He's like ruler over the entire province. God gave him a platform to influence the culture for God even more. Now, what kind of people do we need to be to influence and impact a culture like ours? We need to be, first of all, people who are not chasing what the world chases, people who know that all human answers and all human power will ultimately fail. And friends, we especially need to know that right now in this season of our nation. We're going to have an election pretty soon. And on November 8th, God is going to be in control. And on November 9th, whatever happens on November 8th, God is still going to be in control. We may not like the outcome. We may not like where things seem to be headed. It doesn't matter ultimately. God is still in control. The God of heaven reigns. His will always is ultimately done. And this is so important because if you know that, if you trust that, if you base your life on that, then when your faith faces challenges, when your faith faces crises, you can stay calm. You can use your mind and build bridges of understanding to a culture that may reject what you believe. You can exercise your faith and trust God. This actually means then that you're going to pray like crazy. And then after you've prayed like crazy in trust of God, you're going to do whatever God has told you to do based on that trust and that dependence, even if it means serious risk. And then you can know whenever you do that, that God will be faithful that God will show his superior wisdom and power and that God will use us. He'll use us in ways that we've never maybe dreamed. He can turn our trials and our traumas, even our persecution into times of witness and influence and transformation. Why? Because there is a God in heaven and he has come to earth and he has revealed himself in the person of his son and Jesus, his son, has lived a perfect life, showing us the Father. He has died a perfect substitutionary death on the cross, paying the penalty for our sins so that we can be forgiven, so that we can have new life, so that we can have power to live differently than the culture around us and therefore show them who God truly is. God can do that in our lives if we'll trust him. There is a God in heaven. There is a God in heaven. Before we pray, 
I'm going to do something a little bit different today, and I want to ask if our ushers could make their way towards the front. And, uh, you know, today's the day that really does kind of feel like fall, you know, has showed up, right? And um, a lot of times we move from one season to another, we kind of transition some things about our lives. And, um, you know, summer can be this relaxing time of recreating, and, but then we get into fall and we, we start reconnecting, we start reprioritizing. And, and in our spiritual lives, this may happen as we reconnect with our small groups and experience fellowship. For some of us, it happens as we, we reaffirm our commitments uh, to God's disciplines like uh, worship, attendance, and, and generosity. And we just want, as we come into this time of our worship, to remind you that the offering is a time of worship. It's not just the way we end the service. It's a time where we worship God by returning to him out of all that he has given to us. Now, we want you to know, in case you don't, that at Southwinds, our, our, our culture of generosity is expressed in two primary ways. First of all, through our tithes and our offerings. And then above and beyond that, at this season in our church's life, through our commitment to what we call Next Gen, this spiritual initiative that we entered into earlier this year to reach our region for Jesus Christ. So we just want to encourage you, if you are still kind of catching up as you transition into the fall, or maybe you just want to make uh, your habit of generosity easier in the future, that we have tools that we can help you with. One of those is automated giving. And you can simply go to the current, log in. There's a place to punch a button that says give, and you can set things up to happen in an automatic way. If you're not sure how that works, or if you don't have an account on the current, we want to encourage you to let us know so we can create one for you. God has given us a great mission. It is to impact our culture. It is to transform and reach our region. Part of that is our faithfulness as God's people, all of us, in generosity. Would you bow your heads as we pray? Heavenly Father, we give you thanks that you have delivered us because, Lord, we all, too, faced death, the death that is due us because of our sin. We thank you for your son who, who came, that rock, not formed by human hands. And he came and he loved us and he died for us, and he's given us new life as we've trusted him. Lord, we just thank you again for all of your blessings, starting with your son, Jesus. Lord, I want to pray specifically for anyone who is here in this, this moment who has not encountered you in a personal way yet. Lord, may you open their hearts. May you cause them to see the beauty of your son. May you grant them repentance and faith so that they may know you so they may experience eternal life. We ask this now, Father, in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, and all God's people together said, 